Five, Five. four, engine ignition, two, one, zero. And liftoff. As the countdown to Mars continues, the perseverance of humanity launching the next generation of robotic explorers to the Red Planet. If all goes according to plan, plenty of eyes will be on Mars on February 18th. Today, NASA's Mars 2020 mission is set to touch down on the Red Planet's surface. It's a really neat mission. The goal is to search for signs of, of ancient life. So they're gonna, it's gonna go around the surface of Mars and, and look for any signs of microbial life. And at the, on top of that, it's traveling, it's bringing with it a helicopter. And so trying to do that on Mars, where there's the atmosphere is 1% of that of uh, Earth, is just outstanding. Um, and so there's a number of really exciting uh, aspects of this, of this mission. So there's no shortage of reasons to get your nerd on. For a small team of researchers at the University of Michigan, those things are secondary. So what we're interested in is none of that. <laughs> For these engineers, it's all about one aspect of the mission, the landing. We're interested in those couple seconds right before and during uh, landing. Right now we have a uh, sort of a, a Zoom call um, with my research group planned. Um, I have uh, some colleagues at uh, NASA and JPL that I'll, I'm sure I'll be, you know, texting with. Uh, and it's, it's convenient. It's landing at three in the afternoon. I mean, come on, this thing's been <laughs> traveling for seven months. That's Jesse Capasolatro, an assistant professor of mechanical engineering for the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He's a researcher with a particularly keen attention to detail, specializing in what he calls messy turbulent flows. He focuses on how the tiniest particles move and collide with each other in large numbers, and his work caught NASA's attention. My name is Jim Lynch with the University of Michigan's College of Engineering, and I tell stories about the research that goes on here. Late in 2019, just months before the U.S. plunged into full-on COVID-19 life, NASA tapped Capasolatro and his team to help study the particles that are stirred by the landing of a spacecraft. The rockets that fire on a typical spacecraft landing kick thousands of tiny surface particles into motion. And those particles can create trouble for any multi-million dollar craft, even under the best of circumstances. Any time you take a spacecraft and it's coming down towards Mars or any planet, uh, it needs to slow down. And how do you do that in a way that, that makes sure that, that the spacecraft doesn't get damaged and it ensures safety of, of everything on board? Is, is actually a really hard problem. And so the, uh, the purpose of what we're doing is looking at when that spacecraft's approaching the surface and you have these exhaust plumes, these jets that are firing, um, how big of the crater is formed during that? And why do we care about that? Well, as that crater gets formed, it's kicking up ejected particles and, and regolith. And that can obviously, that can damage the spacecraft and just make landing very difficult. So, and that's why this particular mission is using the sky crane technology. So the idea is it's gonna hover way above and then lower it to the surface. So you'll still have plume surface interactions, but it's really avoiding getting this, the exhaust plume super, super close. But we have to deal with that for future missions when there's return missions, we have to, the spacecraft have to take off from the surface of Mars and there's no avoiding it there. And if we want to uh, go towards uh, crewed missions, sending people to Mars, then uh, 
we can't rely, my understanding is we can't rely on the, the sky crane technology, and so we, we have to figure it out. For the Mars 2020 space mission and other landings scheduled over the next few years, the University of Michigan crew will collect data and create physics-based models that can be incorporated into codes used by NASA. They'll help predict what happens when a spacecraft attempts to land millions of miles from home. Getting drafted by the world's preeminent space agency is a coup for any researcher, particularly one as young as Capasolatro, who's 34. But the turbulence of 2020 provided him a variety of opportunities to put his expertise to work in unexpected ways. Officials at the University of Michigan's College of Engineering put him right in the middle of efforts to understand the spread of COVID-19 particles in a variety of situations. Working alongside doctors, nurses, other engineers, and administrators, Capasolatro's work helped contribute to our understanding of how COVID-19 can spread in hospital settings and on public transportation. It's research that resulted in real-world changes like bus route optimization to limit risk among passengers. Jesse's story is a good one. With the Mars 2020 landing date quickly approaching, he was kind enough to talk with us about his work for NASA, as well as those unexpected research detours. Good to see you, my man. 2020 was crazy for you. Crazy for everyone, no doubt, but you were very, very busy. For people who don't know about your work, can you explain what you focus on and, and how you study? Right, yeah, so I'm very much a fluid dynamicist, so I study the way things flow, is, is how I like to describe it, but more specifically, I tend to look at, at applications with particles and droplets. So we do stuff with um, uh, sprays, so this might be like fuel injection type of systems. We look at uh, environmental flows, so uh, atmospheric clouds, so things where you have particles or droplets and, and flow. And we tackle this from a, a computational perspective. So we do a lot of um, writing uh, algorithms and code in order to send, and we send them over to supercomputers to crunch the numbers, and then we get the data back and, and try to analyze it and learn something new from, from that. And, uh, and that's, that's exactly what we're doing here with NASA, is, is trying to develop new code uh, to understand this very challenging uh, problem. Well, I, one of the things that's always struck me about the work that you do, and this is coming from someone who is very much less detail-oriented than you are, uh, is how far down you drill on the specifics. You know, simulating an army of particles and projecting each of their movements and collisions. Is, is there something about your personality or skill set that lends itself to this kind of precision work? Were you some sort of strange child growing up? <laughs> I was by no means a strange child. I, I, most of my childhood was riding BMX and, and wrestling. So uh, I don't know how that translated. But when I was in sixth grade is when I started getting into designing websites, HTML. This is like, you know, late 90s. Um, and uh, I was fascinated by the way you can write a command and then what it shows you is, you know, you could write a command and it'll make an image come up, or you write a command and it does something, right? And that, and something about that uh, I was drawn to. Uh, and so I'd say it was sort of website creation was something that drew me into, to, it was my gateway to writing code. Um, and now, you know, the idea that we understand the physical laws that describe the natural world is fascinating to me, right? The fact that it's, it's like predicting the future. I, can, I, I know a set of equations that's going to explain what will happen as long as I can properly describe what those initial conditions are. Um, 
and I know what those equations are, then I can I can figure out what's going to happen in the future. Um, and the brilliant thing with with fluid mechanics is we know those equations. We know how to describe how things flow. The challenge is we just don't have, for the most part, computers big enough to solve those equations, right? And so now what do you do with that? Some people try to simplify the equations and, and, and uh, be able to solve very big problems with, simplified, with, with a bunch of assumptions, simplifying assumptions. Or alternatively, you can try to solve those equations that you trust, um, but in a way where you have used very, very large computers to crunch those numbers. And in that way, you can safely rely on the solutions you get. And I think um, there's a beauty to that, really. Um, you know, we're just, we're just very simple laws of nature. Mass is conserved, momentum is conserved, can give us uh, really an understanding of very complex phenomenon. Well, it's all brought you here. So tell me a little bit about what you and the research team are going to be looking to learn from February 18th when uh, Mars Perseverance lander sets down. You know, what sort of data will you eventually get from this landing and what do you do with it? Yeah, so the a lot of the the data or the, the instruments um, that that the, the rover is equipped with is specifically designed for imaging and sensing. Uh, there's microphones, there's cameras, there's all sorts of equipment for that the last couple seconds, essentially, of when spacecraft enters the uh, uh, atmosphere of Mars and, and lands. And we want to get some sense of how fast is the ejected particles moving? What direction? Um, what kind of impact does it have? I do want to preface that um, they're using a, a sky crane technology, so the exhaust plumes aren't getting too close to the surface, but um, it's still going to get close enough that it's going to lead to quite a bit of ejecta. That's why these problems that we're saying, you know, the exhaust plume interacting with the surface is, is it's likely not going to be a big problem. I'd probably just jinx NASA, so I'll knock on wood somewhere uh, for this mission. But for return missions and future missions where they have to take off from the surface, this is very much an unsolved problem. We mentioned earlier about the about the the data that's involved here. Were you surprised at having talked to you about this before? Were you surprised at how little data has been collected previously? Or I think you've mentioned like there is a a, a bit of data from previous launches, but they're all extremely old. You know, the landing data that we have seems very, very old. Isn't it Apollo era? Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, every mission since the Apollo era, there's been data collected, right? But when it comes to useful data during a landing event, it's just it's just a hard problem. And um, a lot of that data, um, you know, you, you have to say, OK, if I have these these rocket exhaust plumes and I'm entering at this speed, can I get an idea of uh, what size crater is going to form or, you know, certain characteristics of, of what to expect during landing. A lot of that isn't, uh, I've learned, is indeed informed by Apollo era missions. And that, that was, of course, extremely surprising because, you know, it's the 21st century. You know, I think it, what it shows is not that NASA needs more data. It's, it's, it's that data we need is very, very difficult to get. And it further motivates why we need reliable computational simulations 
of these of these events because the data that we we are able to get just not enough and so i think it just really motivates the computational side of things well it's more just it's more than just a theoretical exercise right you you had mentioned to me in the past that there have been there's at least one previous mission that was sort of hindered by damage sustained during the landing process can you fill me in a little on that yeah i believe a, a wind sensor was was damaged on um, on curiosity. This is this is not like um, an order seven effect. This is an, this is really an order one problem. And you know, I think everyone has on their mind these days what SpaceX is doing, right? And we know very much they want to go to Mars. And I believe you know this is this is a problem that they're facing as well. And I my understanding is that they don't know how to deal with this problem. They've essentially given up on it. And, and said, we're just gonna land on a, on a landing pad on Mars. So I have no idea how they're gonna do that, but it's just to tell you, you know, this is a real problem and we don't have it figured out. Um, and so, you know, we could do things with, with sky cranes and lower it to the surface, but if we ever wanna send crewed missions, send people to Mars and we're gonna have larger spacecrafts or for these missions in the next couple of years where we're taking off, you know, return missions, taking off from the surface, we need to figure it out and we need to figure it out soon. You know, one of the things that you've always said is, you know, things change when you start talking about manned missions. So it, it becomes, yeah. like, heightens the importance somewhat. I guess in recent years, the conversation has sort of ratcheted up in intensity with regard to crewed missions. It's time mm -hmm. to get man back on the moon or who's going to be the first to put people on Mars. That seems to be um, a higher priority. Does that lend some sort of additional weight to this particular research? You know, the work you're doing with landings, though, does have the potential to save lives if we're talking about a future of far more, many more crewed missions, right? Yeah, there's always, always going to be uncertainty with, with future missions. I mean, you know, you have a new uh, administration comes in and things change all the time. But I think it's pretty certain that there's going to be either the moon or Mars or both in the not too distant future, there's going to be uh, men and women being sent to these, these places. Right. Um, and I could say with fairly high confidence, it's probably going to happen. So there's been a lot of talk about sending the first female to the moon. Um, I mentioned that to my four year old daughter and she was astonished that no girls have been in the moon, but boys have. <laughs> and so she, she tells me almost every day that when she turns nine, she's going to the moon. Um, but it's on people's minds. It's on, it's on her mind because I, you know, I, I talk about this stuff, but I'm sure it's on many people's minds. Um, the difference between working on a problem that's more theoretical and then working on something like this is that we know that this is going to be a challenge for a number of missions that are going to happen over the next two decades. I mean, there's a number of planned missions for the next 10, 20 years. Uh, many of them involve uh, return missions where you have to take off from the planet. Many of them are going to involve uh, larger spacecrafts approaching, you know, during landing. And so this problem is just going to be amplified. And so, the, you know, I could tell you working with folks at NASA, it, it's very, um, it's on people's minds, right? We need to be past this because, um, you know, it, it's very apparent that this is going to be relevant, super relevant uh, uh, very soon to a number of missions. You know, we'll come back to the to the Mars 2020 project in a second, but there's a I wanted to talk a bit about the work you did last year um, that was related to the spread of COVID-19. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in retrospect, your specialty seems like an obvious match for those health studies that you collaborated on. Can you yeah. 
you were involved in a couple different projects about, uh-huh. that focused on the spread of COVID-19. Can you tell me, just walk me back and tell me how all that came about? There's a single email that was sent out. It might've been before, after Seattle started getting some cases mm-hmm. out. But you know, it's around, it was around there and they were basically saying, uh, can engineers help? And I looked at this email. The way it works in academia is you, you, you get funding for a project, you spend a couple of years on it, you, you write a couple of journal papers, you know, it takes some years to get out and a couple of people in your area read it maybe, right? Um, which, which I'm content with, I'm fine with that. But I saw this and it looked like a fluid dynamics problem to me. And it looked like an important one. Um, and I thought like if, if, you know, if my work is ever gonna have actual, you know, I think my work has real world impact, but I meant like immediate sort of impact if there's ever a way I could help um, in a, with fast turnaround in a way that I thought was meaningful, th- this was really it. So what I did from that email, I reached out to my Fluids colleagues and said, hey, let's set up a meeting and, and think about how we can address this. So we did, and we quickly realized uh, we're just a bunch of fluid dynamicists. We don't know anything about the, the medical side. And so we set up another meeting with, with, the, um, with, with folks from the hospital uh, and it went from there and uh, it quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to be the only problem. Um, and so this task force was was born. Uh, the idea was to get rapid responses from uh, the Michigan health system. They would identify what their needs were. And then myself and others would act as a conduit between the College of Engineering and the health system to try to find the right people uh, the right expertise to address these problems. You were also involved in studying the spread of airborne particles on University of Michigan's blue buses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And also you were roped into doing some research over at the School of Dentistry, um, how particles moved inside the clinics over there. It's a space where the dentists get training and also patients come in for, for care. So in both cases, that work led to a series of recommendations for best practices that the yep. university has, has taken and run with. Tell me a little bit about some of the findings that you guys had for those environments and, and what the recommendations were. Yeah, so so this these were projects where we had um, both looking at this these problems experimentally, where we would try to replicate a, a kind of realistic scenario. So we had uh, fog machines on buses and we were measuring uh, these, uh, the concentration and the duration of the, uh, the, the aerosols that were produced um, and then you know, actually driving the buses. And then at the same time, uh, we were working with, uh, so Professor Kevin Mackey um, doing computational simulations. And so it was a truly you know, collaborative and multidisciplinary efforts uh, where we're trying to use both to get as much information as possible. And so, for example, with the bus, what we found was um, based on just the volume of the bus and the uh, conditions in which the intake in the back of the bus was operating, so there's a heating uh, and, and ventilation on the bus, if someone on the bus were to cough or sneeze, uh, I believe in about 40 to 45 seconds, everyone on the bus is breathing in a portion of that. And that's just simple, uh, uh, very simple fluid dynamics. The, the fact that uh, um, just based on the airflow from, the, uh, from the, the ventilation. So luckily you're breathing in a very small portion of that. But what we wanted to do is be able to translate that to risk, right? 
And so based on what was known um, from the literature, right, this is, this, was, this is still a very novel virus. There's still a lot that's not known, but when we were doing this a couple months ago, even less was known, right? It's something new is being learned every day. We took the most conservative metrics and we basically said, um, how can we operate in a way that will guarantee the minimal risk? And on the bus, what that meant was limiting the duration of each trip to less than 15 minutes and having windows open. Windows open is uh, huge because that's going to dilute the concentration that's gonna bring in fresh air. Um, and what we found was uh, probably not surprising, the most effective measure you can take is wear a mask. Uh, I think every study I've seen kind of shows that wearing a mask is the best thing you could do. And then after that, short, shortly after that is opening windows and bringing in fresh air. And so what happened was the bus uh, the, the bus routes were completely redone um, so that they moved to this sort of hub and spoke model to ensure that every trip was less than 15 minutes and um, the bus windows were uh, kept open and passengers have to wear masks. And I believe it's been quite successful um, so far. It's a little challenging now with the winter and the cold weather. It puts a lot of strain and stress on the, on the buses themselves. Um, but, you know, we kind of went, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. So can we make very conservative estimates uh, to guarantee that, you know, as best we can, that there's going to be very low risk. So that was the bus. Yeah. Give me a quick rundown on the, the dental clinic, too. Yeah. So with the dental clinic, uh, anytime that you have multiple people in indoor spaces, that's like worst case scenario. That's, that's where most of these, these uh, um, spreading events are taking place. But now put on top of that, uh, these uh, different dental procedures that generate aerosols. So high-speed drilling generates a ton of particles. So this is just a very, this, uh, uh, it just becomes even more challenging to ensure that, that no one's going to get, uh, uh, transmit the disease. So, so Margaret Woldridge and Andre did mostly ran, uh, um, they did fantastic work looking at high-speed imaging during drilling to see how much was being produced, where does it go? And then we also, on top of that, had computational fluid dynamics to look at when these particles are produced, where do they go? And so where should, where should um, the operations take place? How should we stagger them in a way that will make sure that um, when these aerosols are produced, they're not going to float around and spread to anybody else? What do you feel like we haven't given you a chance to talk about? It's just exciting, you know, working on a project that's um, a large part of the country is going to be watching this event happening and, and to think that, you know, we're, we're working with some of the folks that, that have been um, directly, you know, responsible for making this happen and, and working on a project so future missions can actually happen. So I think it's just, it's just been fun. It's been exciting. And, and I, I, I love it because it's just, a, it's an excuse to do fundamental fluid dynamics research, right? And get paid for it and, and train students. Um, but at the same time, actually be able to uh, uh, communicate with the broader public, you know, this is what I do. And so uh, just last week, I did this outreach program with a bunch of middle schoolers. And I was talking about COVID-19 and Mars 2020. Um, and it's just the perfect way to engage with, with uh, 
children and, and adolescents. And, you know, the responses were fantastic. And, you know, I was getting people were telling me flu dynamics is awesome. I was showing them slow motion videos of people sneezing. You know, it's, it's you're, you're not going to get someone's attention more than, than that. Well, I'm sure you hear that all the time about fluid dynamics. Um, yeah, you know, everywhere I go. <laughs> you know, you, you, you chose it, though, because you wanted some variety. Did you ever think that it would include this wide array of topics all in such a short period of time? No, no. I mean, I wasn't anticipating that. Um, and for, for a lot of my career, I've been looking at, you know, particles and flow. And it's usually motivated by um, uh, the energy sector, fluidized bed reactors. So, so if you want to convert fossil fuels or, or biofuels into energy, it's done in this environment where it flows turbulent and there's particulates. And, and that's, that's been great. So, you know, I've been developing a lot of tools to tackle that. But using those same tools now to look at Mars 2020, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just been a lot of fun. And it's, it's a great motivation for, for my, my students as well. With, with COVID-19, it's, it's just very, there's a lot of things that are just very difficult, right? And my postdoc that I hired for this NASA project joined last March and I haven't met him yet. You know, I, we, we've met on, we've talked on, online, but we haven't physically met. There, and there's a lot of things about, about this pandemic that's just, uh, it, it's just really hard to, to get through and people are gonna be analyzing this time for, for years to come. But I, at least having the opportunity to sort of collaborate with with folks at Michigan I haven't collaborated with and um, look at these these new problems has has definitely been one positive thing to come out of it I would say for me